that. Um, my name is David Litton, and I'm one of the elders or shepherds here at Shiloh. And I can tell you, I'm a whole lot more comfortable. I'm a banker by trade, and I'm a whole lot more comfortable in a Bible class with a whiteboard behind me and a few questions to ask that we can learn together what God is saying to us through his word. Um, So just one other quick item. For those of you who were here last week, and uh, Gary asked uh, or said you could time him on his sermon, and I know that some of you did, and he, yes, he does admit that it went 47 minutes last week, as we were reminded in our small group by some of our young people. And, um, but he told me today I could be a hero if I'd keep it under 30. So um, we'll see how that works today. But um, we are going to continue the leadership series today as we talk about being a shepherd and um, different aspects of that. And the title of today is, What Does a Shepherd Need? But our text for today, if you want to be turning there, is actually from Exodus uh, 17. Uh, it's, we're looking at le- leadership lessons from the life of Moses. And uh, just, I will begin reading with verse 8. <clears throat> Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men for us and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand... Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the sunset. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. I don't know about you, but this is one of those stories I would love to see the original video of how this played out in a day's time. And there is so much that that portion of Scripture does not tell us. And so I always try to visualize what, what really is going on. For those of us who have been in church for a while and, and know this Exodus journey story, we're familiar with Moses we're familiar with Joshua and Aaron, but who's her? That raises questions for me. He's not mentioned very much in the Bible. Some think, some historians think that that was a brother-in-law of Moses. Some think it was a nephew or some other close relative. Later in Exodus, there is a her that's mentioned in a genealogy And if so, if this is the same herd, then his grandson, Bezalel, was one of the guys that did most of the work or leading the work of building the tabernacle and all of the things that went with that. But when I'm going through and thinking of all these questions, one question comes to mind. 
What if her had a wife named Helma? Would they, and would they have Tao's monogram that said him and her? I'm sorry, I know that was bad. But those thoughts do go through my brain. But there are many questions that, ra- that this raises about how this played out and what is God teaching the people in the story and subsequently us today. So I want to read that text one more time, and I want you to pick one of the participants in that story, whether Joshua or Moses or Aaron or her or whoever, and see how visualize how this played out in your mind from their perspective. Let's read this once again. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men for us and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the sun set. And Joshua defeated Amalek with the sword. Have you ever tried to hold your hands up for very long? You lose blood very quickly because of gravity. And it doesn't take very long before your hands get weary. And this story takes all day long. I remember years ago when we were doing a building project on one of the men's mission trips to Mexico and we were going to sheetrock a ceiling. I remember being on a scaffold with Gary Counts on one end and I'm on the other and we're trying to hold up sheetrock while some other guys, the, the smart guys, with the drills <laughs> and the screw gun were attaching the sheetrock to the trusses. And I just remember, it didn't take very long, and I'm not a very strong guy anyway, not like Gary Counts, and I mean, I was just dying, and I was just setting the sheetrock on my head (laughs) and trying to get it up to the truss, you know. And then some guy like Ronnie Jones or somebody would come by with a two-by-four and just hold it up, and you're just down there, thank you, thank you. And one of my questions is, why did the, ra- the, the, st- the staff have to be raised anyway? What is this staff of God? If you go back to the first of Exodus and read through several chapters, it's an interesting journey. Because when 
Moses was at the burning bush, God said, what's that in your hand? A staff. Throw it down. Became a snake. Do you remember the story? And later, when he was standing before Pharaoh, he threw down the rod, or the staff, and his snake ate up all the other snakes and then turned back into his staff. He used it time and time again to strike the Nile, and it turned into blood. Or maybe to strike the dust, and it created a plague of gnats that covered the land of Egypt. Later in the story, he will hold it out over the Red Sea, and it parts. And a million or two people of the Israelites march through on dry ground. And at the end of the night, when they're all safe, and Pharaoh's army is charging toward them, at dawn the next day, he stretches out his staff, and the waters close over the army and drown the army of Pharaoh. And just earlier in this story, the people are tired and discouraged and they're thirsty because they don't have any water, because they're in a desert. And he strikes a rock, and water comes out to quench the thirst of an entire nation. Now he calls it the staff of God. But why does he have to hold it up all day? He's never been asked to do that before. He would just strike it, stretch it out, whatever. But today, there's something different. And I think God is trying to teach them and us some special lessons. Many other questions come to mind. How long did it take him to figure out that the position of the staff was having an influence and an impact on the battle? What kind of weapons did these guys have? I mean, you think about it, just a few weeks earlier, they're slaves in Egypt. I don't think they were a well-outfitted army with all of the weaponry of the day, which may have just been swords and spears. But it says they left uh, they left Egypt prepared for battle. That was very interesting. I, I thought there would be guys with rocks in the desert, chunking rocks at the army, and it'd be like David and Goliath, some very God-guided rocks would knock down the enemy. And then maybe they could take their sword and have a weapon to fight with. But it does say at the end that, that he defeated Amalek with the sword. So what I want to do for just a moment is to just, and this is just speculation because the text does not tell us, but what was that interchange like between those people that day, between Joshua and the three guys at the top of the hill? Because this may tell us something about our expectations of our leaders and our leaders' expectations of us in this process. Scenario number one, 
What if Moses took Aaron and her along as messengers if reinforcements were needed? They weren't standing right beside him on the edge of the hill, but they were nearby. Moses raises his staff as a signal to begin the attack. Joshua sees it, and the battle cry is shouted, and the battle begins. Moses keeps his hand raised for a few minutes, and the battle seems to be going well. Since his arms are tired, he decides to put the staff down, leans on it, and continues to watch the battle. But he's noticing that the battle soon turns, and now Amalek has the advantage. So he begins praying. Lord, we need your help. And maybe once again he raises his staff. And the momentum seems to swing back in Israel's favor. But once again, before long, his arms tires, tire, and he lowers his staff again. But for some reason, when the pattern continues, he figures out that he has got to keep the staff raised in order for Israel to win. Aaron and her are observing what Moses is doing. They could be thinking, you know, this is not really a great battle plan, and if I were in charge, things would be different and better. Meanwhile, Moses is pleading with God, why do I have to keep the staff raised in order to win the battle? I can't keep this up. I've never had to keep it raised the whole day to accomplish any of the impossible things that you've done with this staff. Why, God? Why? Help us. If you're really there, help us. Aaron suddenly sees one of his sons in the battle, surrounded by Amalekites, and he's injured. He yells at her, we've got to do something now. Let's go hold his arms up. And you know the rest of the story. Let's look at a second scenario for just a moment. Moses, his older brother Aaron, and her were standing side by side on the top of the hill. Moses raises the staff of God and the battle begins. Moses is praying that God's power will prevail over the Amalekites. Aaron and her are watching the battle rage below them. Not a war like today in modern times where you've got artillery support from a distance, air support weakening the enemy by bombing them relentlessly from from the back of their lines before the forces even advance. This is hand-to-hand combat, exhausting deadly hard work. Sometimes Israel is pushing the battle line forward. Sometimes they're having to retreat and regroup. But at this point, no one has made the connection between the elevation of the staff and its implications for the battle. Meanwhile, down in the trenches, Joshua feels good about the progress. He looks up to see his leader. He has his arms raised with the staff of God. 
Joshua thinks God is with us and we are winning. We cannot be defeated. Before long, his troops begin to tire and are being pushed back. Casualties are mounting. He looks to Moses and he is holding his staff by his side. Joshua is the first to realize the implications of the position of the staff. I have to tell them, Joshua says. So he runs a short distance away from the battle line on a ridge and tries to get the attention of the three guys on top of the hill. Your staff, you got to keep it elevated for us to win. Aaron is the first to notice Joshua and his signal. Moses, you have to keep the staff raised for Israel to win. I just got a word from Joshua. Moses does his best for as long as he can, but fatigue sets in. What can we do? Aaron and her call a deacon's meeting to discuss a strategy. (laughs) Not. We can help him. We can hold his hands up. But as they hold his hands up, it doesn't take very long before their arms are tired too. How about if we put Moses on this rock and we can stand holding his arms like this from our waist instead of over our hands? Stay in that position for very many hours and you'll understand that this was not an easy task. So your vision of how that plays out tells us something about leadership in God's family. The expectations of the leader themselves and of the people that they lead. Was Moses embarrassed to ask for help? And I'm going to ask a lot of questions I'm not going to answer today or I'd run over Gary's 47 minutes. Were Aaron and her standing to the side murmuring about the quality of the leadership under Moses? It isn't the first or the last time that's, that's going to happen on this 40-year journey. Did Aaron and her wait until they noticed some of their relatives being killed before they became part of the solution? Did Aaron and her volunteer to help and they were told No. Did Moses ask for help immediately? And they all had great ideas to keep his arms elevated and win the battle. And couldn't God win the battle without the staff even being there? Obviously, yes. So what is God trying to teach Moses and Aaron and her and Joshua and each one of us? There's lots of applications, but let me just share four thoughts that I think apply to us today. Number one, we are all in a battle. Number two, when we are in a battle, and even though God is with us, we still need each other in order to survive. 
Number three, we need praying leaders who are pleading with God for his presence and his power in order to accomplish the important things. And number four, leaders get weary and need the support of the people that they lead. So let's look at each one of these a little deeper. Whether we are aware of it or not, on a daily basis, we all are in a battle. Today, it may be a physical battle for our own life, for the life of a family member because of an accident or a life-threatening disease. Or more importantly, it may be our own spiritual battle with temptation or someone who, in our church family who is struggling with an addiction or a friend's child who has walked away from faith. The mundane daily grind of life can discourage us and distract us all from putting God's priorities first and foremost today. Even when things are going well with us, are we aware of the spiritual battle around us? For the hearts and souls of our co-workers, our fellow students, our neighbors, and everyone we meet. Just like Aaron and her, maybe we all need to be more aware of those around us who are suffering and struggling so we can be a support to them in their time of need. And number two, even though God is with us, we still need each other. I think that's one of the major lessons of this because that staff of God had done amazing things, impossible things through the power of God. And it had become the symbol of God's presence and power in working for his people. But even with that there, in this situation, that was not enough. Joshua needed Moses to lead and to be asking for God's blessings with the power and presence of God with that staff. Moses needed Joshua on the battlefield. Moses needed Aaron and her to help him keep his arms up and the staff of God raised in faith. So Moses could only do the job when he was enabled by the people of God. Leaders don't want to fail in their leadership. Leaders don't want any of their flock to be killed or to lose a battle. But Moses, with all of his human strength, was not strong enough, even with the presence of God, to win the battle. God was teaching them and us that we really do need each other in a significant way. The Christian life is called to be lived out in a community of faith. No matter our age, our economic status, or our health, we all need other people to help us along the way. 
Sometimes it may be something truly amazing. But usually, it's the little things that can make a huge difference. A smile, a hug, a kind word can make all the difference when you're having a really bad day. Or standing on a hill praying for people on the front lines can make a life or death eternal difference in our day. And you may be burdened today, but tomorrow you may have the strength and the opportunity to help carry someone else's burden. So Moses could only do the job when he was enabled by the people of God. So are you an enabler or a complainer? Are you an enabler or just a attender? Number three, Joshua knew that Moses would be praying for him while he was in the battle and that if God was with them, they could not be defeated. The needs of the people in this congregation are varied. And sometimes, to be quite frankly, be quite frank about it, can be overwhelming. As elders... We are not skilled brain surgeons or rocket scientists. We are not licensed counselors that can strengthen every fractured relationship. We are not rich and famous and politically connected to enact social change. We're not wise enough to have all the answers, and we're not rich enough to pay off all the debts. As Gary said so well last week, elders are not called to save the people. Jesus has already done that. We are called to lead the people. The shallow, shallow elders meet regularly, and we always have a time that we call family prayer. That's a special time for us to pray for the needs of the family, and every shepherd, every elder, brings names and situations to that time for us to pray about. It didn't include anything from health to employment to relationships, and the list goes on and on. But we consider it one of our highest honors and privileges to pray for and with you. So anytime, feel free to ask one of us individually or us as a group, and we'll be honored to pray with you and for you to help you through your battle. And number four, leaders get weary and need the support of the people that they lead. Just like Moses could only hold his hands up for so long, we are limited in our capacity to do what needs to be done. There is no doubt in our minds as elders that we need your help. There are more needs that we can 
than we can attend to at any time. And we have many of the same challenges that you do. Some of us are at the age that we have four generations of family situations to deal with. Sometimes those are joyful and sometimes they're heartbreaking. But they all take time. We lose jobs and we lose health and we lose loved ones. Just like you do. We are not immune to the casualties and the challenges of a fallen world. We are part of the flock too. We just have some extra responsibilities. And sometimes when our arms are tired, people suffer consequences. So it is a great encouragement for us to see and hear how many of you are so observant and so caring and respond so well to the needs of your brothers and sisters in this family. Preparing food for a family <clears throat> excuse me, that is dealing with a major illness a drink of water when you're getting dry <clears throat> visits to the lonely or the homebound visits to the hospital attendance at a funeral or a memorial service that's a long list and so many of you do that so well thank you but if you feel like there's nothing you can do all you have to do is pray for opportunities and they will come if you only have a widow's might give it if you only have a simple prayer pray it if you have hands that can help use them and do it all to the glory of God any acts of service in the name of Jesus is in great is a great encouragement for your leaders recently in preparation for this sermon I asked the elders separately what they needed from the flock you know the first word out of their mouth just pretty much every time prayer just like Moses having trouble keeping his arms elevated all day long we need your prayer support more than anything else your prayers help keep us going and just watch watch us you don't have to just say Lord be with them what does that mean Pray for our wisdom. Pray for our vision, our courage, our care and compassion, our endurance. Whenever you see us weak in an area, which you will, pray about that. We need your support. And I know that you know this all too well, but the analogy of elders as shepherds does break down at some level. We try to follow the good shepherd, Jesus. But the best we can be is a sheep wearing a shepherd's outfit, holding a staff, trying to lead. You can see that cartoon in your mind. I don't have a slide like Gary would have. 
a sheep standing there on his hind feet with a cloak wrapped around him, holding a staff, trying to play the part of a shepherd. We can do regular sheep stuff because we're human, but only God can do the really good stuff, the amazing stuff. And I know I'm starting to hit my 30-minute limit, but I just have to share this about God doing the good stuff. For those of you who weren't at the Eastern European Missions Dinner this past week, God is working in amazing ways. Um, A year ago at that dinner, they introduced the concept that the Middle Eastern refugee was one of the greatest opportunities the church has ever had. We hear so much of the politics and all that, closing borders, da 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 And there's thousands of Muslims that are hitting the shores of Europe being met by Christians. I wish I could tell you some of the stories. Or Ask somebody who was there. In the middle of the night, their overloaded, poorly outfitted boat hits the rocks, and all these people make it to shore, and they're met by medical people. They're given clothes and food and shelter at no cost in the name of Jesus. And people are coming from a background where Sunnis and Shiites are killing each other and thinking, these people are helping us and they're seeing the love of Jesus and they want to know about Jesus. And Eastern European missions delivered like 800,000 Bibles last year to people in Greece and some other countries in the Farsi language. And one of the pictures I will never forget of these two guys, both from Afghanistan, who are now Christians, working in one of the soup kitchen lines to feed other refugees. And the guy from EEM asked him, did y'all know each other in Afghanistan? Oh, no. I'm Sunni. He's Shiite. We're enemies. And they kill each other daily. But he said, with Jesus, we're brothers. That's the amazing stuff that God can do and is doing all over the world. Just a couple of other things that the elders mentioned, and there was a long list, but I'm not going to do the whole list. Another need from our, shelter, uh, from our shepherds is communication. Whether you have a prayer need, or if you're upset and have a complaint, instead of talking to other people about that and creating a stir, please come to our, us first. Whether it's one-on-one or if you want to come talk to the whole group of elders, we want to have a conversation about your concerns. But let me say this as lovingly and as compassionately as I can say. When there's 400 people in the room, there's going to be 400 perspectives on any given topic. Please be patient with us. We cannot keep 400 people happy about everything all the time. But we also realize that that's not our job. We are here to lead you in paths of righteousness, not in paths of happiness based on your opinions. 
another request from your elders is to trust us. Trust us to have a heart that is seeking to honor Jesus and to further his kingdom. Trust us to make godly decisions, even when they're hard ones. And support those decisions, if at all possible. If not, let's talk. And finally, as was announced a few minutes ago, we're entering into an elder selection process. We need your prayers and your participation in every part of this process. We ask for your prayerful recommendations and for your prayer-led responses in the affirmation and reaffirmation process. We believe that God will speak through you and that this is one of the most important steps that we as a church take as we move toward the future. Now, I want to change for just a moment and say a couple of words to some of those in this audience. I don't know who you are, but there will be some men at some point who will get a tap on the shoulder or a phone call or a visit about being asked to serve as an elder. Whether that's a few weeks away or whether it's 20 years away, you're probably going to feel like Moses at the burning bush. God is asking you through his people to lead the flock. And you're going, I can't do this. And Lord, I don't want to do this. And God says, go to Egypt. You may have a long list of excuses, like Moses, and like most of us did and do but God says what's that in your hand I'll go with you there's a time to say yes and there's a time to say no and we'll pray for your wisdom that God will make it clear to you when it's your time and for everyone else today be a Joshua Be an Aaron. Be a her. Grab a sword or grab an elbow and hang on. God's got a great journey ahead of us. And I know this uh, has not been an evangelistic lesson at all, but there may be somebody here who's curious about this following Jesus thing, this lifestyle of being a disciple of his. And if you have some questions about that, we're going to have the elders and their wives around the auditorium, and we'd encourage you to go meet with one of them. And once again, you may, uh, you may be in a battle today like you've never been in in your life, and you need some prayers. And we'll also 
consider it an honor or a privilege to pray with you individually or to ask for the prayers of the whole congregation. Thank you for your time this morning. I know you'll be glad when Gary's back next week. And even though I did go over 30 minutes, thank you for your time and your attention. Let's stand together. Chuck, if you'd lead us, please, sir. Savior, like a shepherd.